Thank you, Brother Aaron and Marilyn. And we'll turn back to Matthew chapter 13 tonight. Thank you for taking the time to come out and be with us. We trust the Lord will bless our study of His Word. That song reminds us of the great privilege that is ours to know the Lord and to live for Him and represent Him and testify for Him in this world. That's what we've been called to, haven't we? been called out of sin and death and bondage to the devil into our old life and all of our evil habits and been called to a life and walk with the Lord Jesus, joy, peace, eternal love. can't imagine why anyone would want to go backwards given what all we are called to. And our Lord here in Matthew 13 is confronting the nation of Israel, His chosen people under the Old Covenant. They've had many, many wonderful opportunities for some 2,000 years up to the point where Matthew 13 is given. And we'll begin our reading here in verse 10. He has just given the parable of the sower in the first nine verses. We read that this morning. And in verse 10, "...the disciples came and said to Him, "'Why do you speak to them in parables?' He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So he identifies a phrase here that's very important in our understanding of the program of God. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the kingdom of the heavens is now going to go into its mystery form. We'll talk more about that as we move on in our studies in Matthew 13. We won't get elaborate much on that tonight. But we just want to identify that because we are still in the mystery form of the kingdom of heaven in the church right now. And then he gives a principle, an abiding principle that's through that's throughout the Word of God. Whatever dispensation that we are in. He says, for whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. What's he talking about? I think he's talking about illumination, understanding of the Word of God. Given the context, what Matthew has shown us in chapter 12, we didn't study that, but you can go back and look in when our Lord is accused of doing His miracles by Beelzebub, by the power of the devil. And the Lord says, Ah, oh, yes, you're, you're just showing your own hearts. By your words, you're showing your hearts. And therefore, what they had, whatever understanding they had of the kingdom of heaven and the purposes of God according to the word of God, that would be taken away from them. And, but the remnant, those who were his disciples, those who were following him, even what they had, more would be added in abundance to it. And that certainly occurs here in Matthew 13 and in the remaining chapters of Matthew and in the remaining chapters of the New Testament. Marvelous truths regarding God's 
plan and program for us individually, for the church collectively, for this world, for the future, for Christ's kingdom that's to come. And all of that is all revealed in much more detail in the New Testament than what they had up to that point in the Old Testament. But it's only those who are seeking the Lord Jesus with an open heart, finding Him, and then walking with Him that continue to be illuminated with this understanding by the Holy Spirit. So He's bringing out this issue that we spoke about this morning, and that's the issue of human responsibility. God expects human beings to respond to the understanding, the illumination that He gives to them. Romans chapter 1 says, Man is without excuse because he has been informed by two things, right? With regard to the existence and attributes of God. In creation and in conscience. Even apart from the Gospel, Apart from what we know about Jesus Christ in creation and in conscience, man is without excuse to not be seeking God, according to Romans 1. Of course, in creation and in conscience, we don't learn about the gospel of salvation. It's the gospel that tells us about God's love in Christ and His desire to redeem us. So, but, but those who are seeking, the Bible tells us, they who seek the Lord will find Him if they seek Him with all their heart. Right? That, that's a promise in the Scriptures. In Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible. Religions of the world that seek to please God and they don't come to Him His way by faith, it's impossible to please Him. Because they who come to God must know, first of all, that He is, that He exists, and secondly, that He's the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. He's like treasure. He's worthy of all our energy and effort in seeking hidden treasure, if you will. That great treasure chest of truth that we have in the Word of God. So when you, in your own schedule, in your own daily reading, whatever time of the day you do it, and when I do it, we should come to the Word of God as coming to treasure whatever amount of time we can spend in it in each day and expect that the Lord would revive our hearts from the treasure of His Word because His Word is alive. Hebrews 4.12 tells us it's alive and powerful. And so it's not wrong to come prayerfully expecting that He would give us something that would revive us and encourage us and lift us up. It's one of the great privileges we have. But see, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel that our Lord was confronting here, in chapter 12, we find it, and then later in chapter 15 and 16, we find that while the Pharisees had the Word of God, they were not following the Word of God. They used the Old Testament as kind of a good luck charm or something like that. And then they invented a lot of traditions, man-made traditions, that really eventually superseded the Word of God. And we've done that in the church age too, haven't we? 
We want to always come back to the Scriptures. What saith the Scriptures? What saith the Word of God? All of our traditions, we have them because anything we do in, in, in consistency becomes a tradition, but we want our traditions to be rooted in the Word of God. And that's where they faltered. And the Lord accused them of that kind of hypocrisy. But then the Lord does something here to explain... Remember, we sit in this section between the actual giving of the parable of the sower and then the explanation of the parable of the sower. In this section we're in here, in verses 10 to 17, the Lord explains why. Why Israel as a nation, and especially the religious leaders, ever got to this kind of a place. He says in verse 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables. Here's why. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So his changing, his discourse, his communication with them from prose to parables, from narrative type literature to parabolic literature, is a form of judgment upon them, isn't it? See, because they don't understand the parables. And he says, seeing they don't see, hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, and he quotes this section. You know what section this, this quotation from Isaiah comes from? Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, that's where Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, and Isaiah was in a hopeless kind of a condition. King Uzziah was a, one of the great kings. He had his mistakes, but he was a great unifier of the southern kingdom, and they had great victories under his reign. He reigned for one of the longest reigns. In the year he died, Isaiah says, I saw the king. A king. King Uzziah died. That year I saw the king, the Lord of hosts, seated in the temple. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And the seraphim were crying out, Holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah, that's right. Thank you. <laughs> Amen. And we want to start young training them with that. The angels are rejoicing in that too, believe me. And, and, and so we see that Isaiah receives his commission at that time. Remember the Lord says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, send me. Send me. I recognize now how glorious and wonderful you are, Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, and I want to go for you. And so he says, okay, you're going to go throughout, throughout Israel. And be a testimony as a prophet. And here is what your ministry is going to be like. He describes it right. Here comes the quotation. Hearing you will hear. This is verse 14 of Matthew 13. Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this people has grown. What? Dull. Here's the diagnosis. From God why Israel was in the condition they were in, why they were rejecting their own Messiah. The hearts of this people has grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes have grown closed, lest they should see with their eyes, 
hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn. Repent. That word turn, the Hebrew word shuv that we see throughout the Hebrew Old Testament is the same as metanoia in the New Testament. A change of mind. Repent. Lest they should repent so that I should heal them. In other words, to be saved. And if you go on and read in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, how long, Lord, how long am I going to continue to preach that message with, with people with dull hearts like this? He said, keep preaching until the cities are laid waste. How do you like that for a message of encouragement when your prophet is going out? He didn't tell him until, keep preaching until everybody in the nation is saved. Or until some great revival. He says, no, you keep preaching the message and I'll take care of the saving of the souls. He says, there's going to be a remnant saved, but it'll just be a remnant. And Isaiah, you won't know who they are, but I know who they are. And that is what our calling is like too. Now, none of us is called to be a prophet because the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church and that foundation was laid 2,000 years ago. But we are called to be witnesses. Witnesses for God and for Christ. And all of us can witness. Anyone who's a child of God has a testimony. A conversion, a change, a transformation has occurred. And that is a witness. No one can, can take that away from you. They may not believe the gospel. They may not believe what we show them in the Word of God. But they can't deny that change that's happened in us. And that's our witness. We don't have to be eloquent to do it. We don't have to know all kinds of theology to do it. We don't need to be able to quote all kinds of Scripture. Although the more, more we can quote, the more it helps, right? Because the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to awaken a heart. So any of us can witness, and we're all doing it. I know all of you, I, I know most of you, and we're all doing it in different ways, in different capacities, in our different walks in life. You say, well, how long do I keep witnessing? I don't see much response. <laughs> well, Isaiah was told he wasn't going to get much of a response. Here he is, the prince of the prophets, probably the greatest in the Hebrew mind, and, in, and many of us as Christians look at the book of Isaiah as one of the great books of the Old Testament. Isaiah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And he didn't have that kind of success? He didn't fill all the pews? The cities would be laid waste, he said. Judgment would come. The Babylonian invasion. But he said, continue standing for me. There's an interesting passage, not in Isaiah chapter 5, but in Isaiah, I mean in chapter, we were just talking about Isaiah 6. In Isaiah chapter 5, we have the song of the vineyard. And this closely parallels the parable of the sower. Now the vineyard has to do with a vine growing grapes, and the sower has to do with seed producing wheat. But there are parallels, right? It's the growth process and the idea of bearing fruit. And the Lord says in Isaiah 5, 1, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up, 
cleared out its stones, planted it with the choicest of vines, built a tower in its midst, and also made a wine press in it. So he expected to to bring forth good grapes. Why would he expect that? Because he did everything. It was a fruitful hill, and he did everything to prepare for it. And so he established his vine, and he expects to find good grapes on the vine. But it brought forth wild grapes. Grapes that are too sour to be used or to be eaten. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard? This is what the Lord will say at the great white throne judgment to people who have rejected the gospel and rejected submitting the knee to Jesus Christ. He's going to say, what more could I have done for you to show you this? Look at all the people I sent to you. Look at all the changed lives that were around you. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And then later on he says, the vineyard, in verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So he's very clear about what vineyard he's talking about. He says, he looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. In other words, the people were crying out for help because they were being exploited. And that's what was happening in our Lord's day also in Israel. The religious leaders, the money changers in the temple were exploiting and oppressing the people. And our Lord comes in as Messiah and confronts them with that and they don't like it. So in their mind, what do the Pharisees think? The Pharisees say, hey, we have the keys to the kingdom. They belong to us. And we're going to keep them. We're not going to give them to you, to the Lord Jesus. Now, did the Pharisees have the keys? No. The Lord Jesus had the keys. And He gives them to Peter and the apostles later on in chapter 16, doesn't He? You see, they fooled themselves. They deceived. The Pharisees deceived themselves into thinking that, yeah, we're in control here. We've got the temple. We've got the priesthood. We have control of the finances here in Israel. And we're not letting it go. And we're certainly not going to give it to Jesus of Nazareth. And so we see then people today that we share the gospel with or that we witness to. It relieves a great burden to me, and I think it does to you too, to realize that I don't have to convert anybody. I'm not responsible for converting anybody. Neither are you. Who's the one responsible for that? The Lord. Only the Lord can do that. The Lord has not asked us to take on that burden. Now, some of us may think we're so special that we take that burden on ourselves that, you know, I'm the prize evangelist and I, you know, it's got to be me or it, it won't, there won't be any conversions or something like that. Not that anybody in this room thinks like that. 
But we just we're just sowing the seed. He wants to work through us to sow the seed. That's a tremendous relief, isn't it? It takes away all the anxiety. It takes away all the tension. He says, sow the seed. You mean I don't have to memorize all 66 books before I go out and sow the seed? No. Just memorize one verse and keep sowing that same verse maybe. Pick a verse that works with you that's easy. Don't take a hard one. Don't take one that has 18 different phrases in it. Take a simple one. John 3.16, John 3.18, John 3.36, John 5.24, John 10.28. There's so many verses that we can use. Romans 1.16. And that's our great privilege. So the Lord gives this picture of Himself as sowing the seed. What were the three things that characterized the good ground here this morning. Remember that? The three things that characterize the good ground here in verse 23. He who receives seed on the good ground is he who, first of all, hears. He has to hear the Word. And notice what he has to hear. He doesn't have to hear your Word or my Word. He doesn't have to hear... not told that he's to hear the philosophies of some man, however great a Greek philosopher or Roman philosopher or Indian philosopher it might be, is to hear the Word of God. Here's the Word of God. Secondly, that person then understands the Word of God. And how does an individual who's lost begins to understand the Word of God. How does that happen? Well, 1 Corinthians 2, 11. We didn't look at it this morning, but in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 of 1 Corinthians, the Spirit of God, that's part of His ministry to illuminate. That Spirit, His, the Spirit of God working with the Spirit of the individual to bring understanding of the message that's in the verse that is shared from the Word of God with them. And then thirdly, who indeed bears fruit and produces. In other words, responds after understanding the Gospel by believing in Christ and being born again and going on and living a life of discipleship to the Lord Jesus with varying degrees of productivity, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. That's what it's about. And you notice those three things occur also in the verse from Isaiah 6 that Matthew quotes here, that, that our Lord says. You notice here, it's here, understand, and bears fruit or produces. You notice in verse 15, they hear, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear, in my Bible I circle it, because they line up. They hear, lest they should understand. That's the second step. And thirdly, and then with their hearts, they turn. They repent. They receive Christ. They turn to God from idols. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, right? One of the great definitions in the New Testament we have of repentance. You notice the order. They don't turn away from the idols to God. They turn to God. That's what repentance means. Turning to God, which means they were 
turned away from God before, right? Turning to God. And when they turn to God, they turn away from the idols of their past, the things they were trusting in before, to give them peace and love and salvation. And that's what repentance is. It's the same thing in Isaiah 6. It's the same thing here in the parable of the sower. So we all, I think, have an understanding then of the parable of the sower. All three synoptic gospels give the parable of the sower. It's an extremely important parable because our Lord is, is illustrating what His ministry in the world is going to be from here on forward. From here on forward, He is sowing the seed through His people. And the obstacles to fruitfulness continue as well, don't they? The obstacles to fruitfulness we saw were three, weren't they? Characterized by the three types of soil condition. The one was disinterest in the things of God. Just not interested. And the devil takes whatever was sown in their heart, he takes it away, right? The seed that fell by the wayside. And the second was just strictly an emotional response. The danger of, for many in the charismatic movement, not for all of them, but for many, is to have such an emotional workup using music that appeals to the emotions and working someone up into an emotional response before they have understanding. You see, because the Holy Spirit, in order for someone to be saved, the Lord's not going to force Himself on anyone. He wants them to understand and that their will to be involved in them. For your will to be involved in making a decision for Christ, you have to understand the Gospel. So the Lord gives time for that. They have to hear it, understand it, and then believe with their hearts and turn to God from idols. So, the one who responded with immediate joy at first and then the trials of life came in. And one of the things that in discipleship we want to be careful to communicate to people, people who get saved and born again, is that after they're saved, there is going to be spiritual conflict. You see... They will begin, a new believer begins to recognize that they were in this enormous cosmic battle for souls between God and the devil. And the devil blinds the hearts of many, according to 2 Corinthians 4 4, so that they will not hear and understand and believe the gospel. So he's actively involved in obstructing people from being saved. The devil does not want people to be saved. But we find out after, not before usually. We don't usually understand that before we're saved. We're just trying to learn forgiveness and what it is to have redemption and salvation. When we find this out, we find out we're brought into this great cosmic battle that God is in the business of saving souls all over the planet. And now we are in a great spiritual conflict. And as Paul puts it in Ephesians 6.12, he says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. Our great conflict isn't with people. The world 
powers of the great countries of this planet, they fight against people. And politicians fight and go after people. But ours, our, ours is not flesh and blood, but with what? Principalities and powers of darkness. The rulers of this age. Those four different categories of demon hosts that are keeping people in bondage and in darkness away from truth and light. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10.4, the weapons of our warfare in this great cosmic battle are not carnal. They're not fleshly. But what are they? Mighty through God to the pulling down of Jericho strongholds. We've got walled cities too, don't we? Not literal Jerichos. But we've got great walled cities, strongholds of sin in our lives that were there before we were saved. And some of us are haunted by giants like Goliaths that put us in fear and bondage. We say, well, how am I going to go up against that? The same way Israel went up against them, they went by faith in the Word of God, didn't they? He says, circle around Jericho seven times. Oh, you've got to be kidding. What kind of military strategy is that? It's dependence on me. That's what it is. And beloved, that's one of the great hopes of the gospel. One of the great truths of the gospel is that when we share the gospel with someone, and I hope that all of us who are Christians here tonight are convinced of this fact, the gospel is the power of God under salvation for all people, Jew and Gentile. And there's no stronghold of sin that's too strong for the power of God, is there? The Lord can overcome any stronghold of sin in the life of an unbeliever. Whatever that is, whether it's an anger problem, whether it is a reaction to or mis abuse or a rape that happened in their childhood that they just can't get through, or, or whether it is a, a covetousness problem and desire for money and just there's never enough, or whether it's a sexual lust problem or alcohol problem or a drug addiction problem, those are all Jerichos. Those are all walled city strongholds that we look at. And like the <laughs> children of Israel, they said we were like grasshoppers in their sight. And the walls went all the way up to heaven. Well, when you stand at the base of the, the mound, the tell of Jericho there today, the, the, the walls are down, of course, now. But you can imagine what they were. And you stand and you look at those walls and they look like they're going all over to heaven. They go right up to the clouds almost. How are we going to overcome? Same way you and I overcome. By the power of God unto salvation. In the gospel. Education has proven itself, hasn't it? John Dewey and the Educational Humanist Manifesto that came out in 1910. 
They said, oh, we know we're going to convert people through education. What they need, what man lacks, he just doesn't have enough education. After all, they believe in the evolutionary hypothesis that man was getting better and better and evolving. He just needs a little more education. If he's got problems, if he's getting involved with gangs and doing the wrong things and doing evil things, he just didn't get enough education. We've got to bring in education. Isn't that what our society has believed for the last 90 years? And has it worked? Is it safe to walk in, in your cities at nighttime in certain areas? Wouldn't think of it. The education didn't do it, did it? But the power of the gospel can. And God knows that. And oh, that His people would know that. And we're all growing in our understanding, in our faith, in the power of God and the gospel, aren't we? Try me and see. Test and see. Taste and see that I am good, he says. And my word is good. It's like honey to the soul. It's more powerful, more wonderful than all the gold and silver and riches of the world, Psalm 19 tells us. The word of the Lord is perfect. The word of the Lord, Lord is powerful. The word of the Lord is beautiful. And we have it right here. That's what we're sowing, the seed of the Word. But that brings him to his second parable. Here we see in verse 24, another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now again, as we said this morning, they could look around and see the fields that were all around them and they probably saw men that were doing this. It's like a man sowing good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Hmm. Sows good seed, goes to sleep, and while he's sleeping... Somebody sneaks in and sows tares. What are the tares? The tares are weeds. And when you study this particular tear, this particular weed out, you can do this in a Bible dictionary or Bible encyclopedia, you find out that this particular weed is called, in the Middle East, it's called the darnel. And the darnel looks just like wheat. When I was over there, they showed me a stalk of wheat and a darnel. I held them in my hand side by side. They were the same color. They were the same texture. They had the same leaf structure. They were the same height. They grew together in the field. So how could you tell them apart? How could you? Well, the weed doesn't produce any fruit, right? That's why it's a weed. The wheat, when it grows to it, it has wheat at the top. It has the kernels of wheat at the top. The darnel does not. Another thing that's rather interesting about this particular type of this species of wheat, of weed, the darnel, that grows in the Middle East, is that its characteristic is that it grows in the fields where wheat is growing, 
And the roots of the darnel grow and wrap themselves around the roots of the wheat. So not only are they alike in appearance, but they're so closely intertwined in their root system that to pull up the weed, you've got to pull up the good wheat with it. Well, a farmer's not going to pull up his wheat, is he? So you have to let them both grow together. That's what he's saying. Let's read on. So he says, But when the grain, verse 26, when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, sound familiar? That's what he just said in the parable of the sower, right? So it's, it, they, they, these two parables do connect to each other. Produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have these tares? Where did they come from? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? He said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Because the owner of the fields knew the principle that the root systems of the two grew together and you couldn't separate them then. He says, Let both grow together until the harvest when the wheat has fully produced its fruit. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. Because there's no use. They're just weeds but gather the wheat into my barn. So there's going to be a separation of the weed from the wheat, but it's not going to occur until the harvest. That's what he's saying, right? Now, the parable of the sower I suggested to you this morning answers the question, why did the nation of Israel respond to the Lord Jesus' testimony the way they did? And the answer is what? Why did they respond like that? Because their hearts were dull. Right? Just like today, why do people not respond to the gospel? Because their hearts are dull. And you and I can relate. Because we had dull hearts at one time too. It took some time. We didn't believe the gospel the first time we heard it. It took some time for the Lord to draw us and woo us and work in us. The whole drawing ministry of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. It, that's a wonderful mystery of what goes on in the conversion of any soul. Like we said on Friday night, someone said it takes 270 people involved in a life for someone to be saved. Someone's done some sort of statistical analysis on it. And we may be the second one of the 270, or we may be the 269th, or we may be the 270th one that sees the person finally come to Christ and leads them to the Lord. We don't know where we are in the process, and it doesn't matter, does it? That's up to the Lord. He knows who's doing it. He knows who to give credit to. But we're so focused on result-oriented from our marketing culture thinking that comes from Madison Avenue that we all want to be... No, I, don't, I just want to be the 270th. I want to be the one to lead him to Christ. I want to be that one that gets to have the joy and experience of it, right? I don't want to do the hard work. I want to get the fun work. The Lord says, no. You take the assignment that I give you. You may be the first one. 
You may be the fifth one. You may be the fifteenth one. But be satisfied with your own lot. Whatever the Lord wants us to do, yea, we'll do it. Amen? And so he says here, in the explanation of the parable, beginning in verse 36, Jesus sent the multitude away, went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Well, we'll only get started into this tonight, because we'll run out of time. But let's look at what he says. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Okay, we, we, we're, we're lock on on that, right? In other words, the one, the one sowing the good seed is the Lord Jesus. It's the Son of Man. Okay, yeah, okay, we're good. We're working with that, right? We're tracking. And then he says, the field is the world. Okay, that makes sense. The field, the world, he's the, he's the Son of Man is sowing the seed in the world. But then look at this. The good seeds are the Word of God. Is that what it says in your Bible? In the parable of the sower, the good seed was the Word, wasn't it? It was the Gospel. The Gospel of the Kingdom. But in the parable of the tares of the field, the good seed is the sons of the Kingdom. It's you and me. It's believers. He changes a little bit, see? And this parable is answering the question, what's going to happen, Lord? If they're denying you the keys of the kingdom, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You've come here to Israel. They've rejected you. What next? What are you going to do? And in this parable, he answers that what question. He answered the why question in the parable of the sower. In the parable of the tares of the field, he answers the what question. What's going to happen between the first coming of Messiah and the second coming, what we sometimes refer to as the inter-advent period. Advent means the coming, right? So the first advent, the second advent, and in between is the inter-advent period. That's the period we're still in today. It includes the church age, but it's not just the church age, is it? Because there's some time before the church age, what our Lord is giving here, the church age really doesn't start till Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. According to Peter, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, he defines that as the beginning. And then there are seven years after the church is taken out during the tribulation period. And both those things include, along with the church age, include the inter-advent period. And that's what our Lord's talking about here. But, and we can't go any further tonight in the parable of the tares of the field than this. But think about this. Did you notice, did you... Did you wonder why they asked the question the way they did? How often have you referred to this parable as the parable of the wheat and the tares? I, I have many times. But in studying it, what do the disciples call it? Explain to us the parable of the wheat and the tares? Is that what they ask? No, they said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. <laughs> you see... They knew about the power of God. And they knew they themselves were wheat. They were fruitful. They had responded to the message. They weren't surprised that when the seed was being sowed, that good seed was producing good fruit. And 
that when the Son of Man sowed the seed, that there would be good wheat growing in the field. They weren't surprised by that. They, they didn't need an explanation for why the wheat was growing. You with me? What they were wanting an explanation of, Lord, what are you doing by letting these tares grow in the field? You with me? That's what they wanted to know. They were narrowing in on a certain aspect of the parable. And by them doing that, they're telling us what the heart of this parable is about. You mean to tell me, Lord, that while you're building your church in this world, there is going to be a false system that claims to be your church, that claims to be loyal to Christ, that claims to be Christian, that really isn't. It's just a weed, a fake, a pretender church. And they're both going to grow together during the entire church age. Lord, is that what you're telling me? That's exactly what I'm telling you. We refer to it often as Christendom. This massive institutional system that's involved in the business and commerce of this world. It's involved in the politics of this world. For many years during the Middle Ages, it instituted kingdoms, put down certain kings, put in other, installed other kings in kingdoms of this world. Is any of that asked of the church in the Bible? No. The church is to be separated from this world. And we find that this system is going to start real small, like a mustard seed, and then it's going to grow into this massive, unwielding system. And God's going to let that happen while His true church is growing too. That's why I get a little irritated when trying to be nice. A little irritated when someone says to me that's a fellow Christian, wow, what's happening to the church today? Isn't it terrible? Whoa! Wait a minute. You're putting my Lord's character in disrepute. The Lord knows what He's doing in His church now. His church is true believers in the body of Christ. I know many of them. They're doing fine. They're honoring the Lord. They're loving the Lord. They're desiring to meet around His elements and worship Him. They love to sing for Him. They love to witness and testify for Him. They love to take a stand for truth in love when it's necessary. I know a lot of people like that in different parts of this country and in different parts of the world. He's building His church. The Lord isn't faltering on this deal. Don't put Christendom in where His church is. They are distinct. They are separate. They won't, the two shall never meet. And as Dr. Ironside says in his commentary on Revelation, the day after the rapture occurs and the church is taken out, there are going to be many so-called churches, church buildings, that may be three-quarters to half full the day after the rapture, and may have Dr. So-and-so standing in the pulpit still. Does that surprise you? The Lord told us ahead of time because He's a great protector and comforter and guide and instructor and a good teacher always prepares His pupil for what's about to come so that we don't get caught off guard and fall victim of anxiety and terror and fear. 
So he gave us the parable of the tares of the field. And in the will of the Lord, we'll look at this in more detail on Tuesday night. I hope you can join us. When we get down to the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price, we may get there on Wednesday night. It may go until next Tuesday. Oh, that's going to be a special section. There are different views about which the two parables represent. I think I can prove to you from the Word of God because that, in our, as we study the Word of God, we validate from the Word of God, don't we? I think I can prove to you from the Word of God both of those views of not only God's view of His people, but the people of God's view of Him, particularly His Son, will be seen there in a marvelous way. Beloved, don't let anyone sell you short. We've been called to a wonderful community of believers and to a mighty, glorious King, Savior, Redeemer. His name is Jesus Christ. I'm not part of Christendom. I'm not part of the National Council of Churches. Don't ever intend to be because they deny specific tendencies and scriptures that are given in the Word of God. They don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in substitutionary atonement. And they still say they're Christian. Why don't they say what they really are? Because if they did, they wouldn't be able to deceive people. They wouldn't be tares. They wouldn't be Darnell. That's the whole point. God's going to test the loyalty of the hearts of His true people by allowing this false system to be erected and to stand all the way until near the end of the tribulation period. In Revelation 17 and 18, it's called Mystery Babylon the Great, the Mother of Harlots. He's, I'm convinced that is the pretender church. It's still there then. And Antichrist will finally get rid of it along with the ten kings that have joined him because he wants to be the one that's worshipped. There's a lot coming on this world. It's exciting to know the truth, to be set free from the dominion of sin and to live for Christ. Oh, beloved, stand tall for the Lord Jesus. Because He's standing in you. Father, we thank You for the Word of God and for the encouragement it gives us. Thank You for each of Your beloved ones here tonight who love the Lord Jesus and love Your Word and taken time out of their schedules to be here because they value and appreciate the truths of the Scriptures and we all want to live for You. Help us to do it, O Lord. Greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. The whole world lieth in the lap of the wicked one. But we're not part of that anymore. We've been called out. We want to live for you. We don't know how long we're going to have. Maybe days, maybe hours, maybe years. Help us to burn out for you and not rust out. Help us to love Christ's appearing. We pray in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.